Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 316. What's for dinner this Shabbat? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today is the second episode in our series exploring Jewish food and Jewish eating. Last week, we looked at the origin of Jewish eating in biblical times. Today, we are flashing all the way forward to talking a little bit about what people are doing today and how folks and their actions are perhaps building on and perhaps changing the way we think of Jewish eating and Jewish food. And so today, our guests are two people with insight on what Jews are doing today, particularly young Jews, when it comes to Jewish eating, in particular, Jewish eating on Shabbat or Friday nights. Our guests today, Annie Presky and Nir Levy, are staff members at the organization One Table. Way back in the first year of Judaism Unbound, in fact, it was just about halfway through the first year, we spoke with the founding CEO of One Table, Eliza Klein. She's still the president and CEO of One Table. Back then, One Table was a relatively new organization. Judaism Unbound was a relatively new organization. The difference is that Judaism Unbound staff has only grown a little, while One Table staff has grown quite a lot. And so today we are talking with Annie Presky and Nir Levy for a Today view of One Table, what they're finding out about what Jews are eating, and all sorts of related matters. One Table describes itself as inspired by ancient Jewish wisdom. It is a national nonprofit that empowers folks, 21 to 39-ish, to find, share, and enjoy Shabbat dinners, making the most of their Friday nights. Their offerings include a social dining platform, That makes it easy for you to become the producer of your own experiences. And they provide simple do-it-yourself tools to enable Shabbat dinner hosts to create unique Shabbat dinner experiences in their own neighborhoods. One Table facilitates folks getting together for Friday night dinners all over the country. So a quick word of introduction, Annie Presky is the Manager of Development and Research at One Table where she works at the intersection of development, research, and the field to manage strategy and storytelling on a regional and national level. Annie Presky was previously the Mid-Atlantic field manager for One Table, and we'll talk about it, but she also has had involvement with Judaism Unbound because she's presented a session at our last two Shavuot Live gatherings. Our second guest, Nir Levy, is the Greater Atlanta Area Field Manager for One Table, where he's responsible for field operations to increase the number of dinners hosted on the One Table platform in Atlanta and across the Southeast. Annie Presky, Nir Levy, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. It's so delightful to be here. What an honor. Well, Andy, this is not your first uh, rodeo with the Judaism Unbound Enterprises because you've been an important speaker in our Shavuot events where you have, uh, in one case, remind me of one case, it was about the bagel, I believe. Yes, the first time I believe I taught on the halakha of bagels, uh, the Jewish law. This is this is a joke, not real Jewish law <laughs> on what kinds of bagels are acceptable and not and why. And we had a very lively debate. That was really fun. And then the next year we talked about 
not cooking a calf in its mother's milk and how we might expand that to things that are vegetarian. So chickpeas and hummus or mozzarella on your pizza or tomato slices on your pizza that sort of thing. Okay, well, so there's a there's an established track record here for your expertise on Jewish foods. And near there's less of a track record, but I'm going to be confident that, that it's there. And that was actually something that we wanted to sort of take another crack at One Table, the organization that you both work at, where we spoke with the CEO of One Table, Lisa Klein, early, early in the history of this podcast. But today, as part of this series that we're doing on food, we really want to explore the question of the food and how the work of one table makes you think differently about food or vice versa. So can we start by just kind of, I'd love to just get your sense of when we invited you to do this, you know, what was like top of mind for you as you said, okay, like I I really have something to say about the food dimension and one table. Well, one of the first things that came to mind for me is that one of the main ways that we support our participants at one table is by supporting essentially their food habits at Shabbat dinner um, through nourishment credit, which can be used for any number of things, but it's almost always used for food. Um, And the dynamic between those who choose to use that credit to help them afford groceries so they can make a home cooked meal versus those who use that credit to get takeout, um, whether that's, you know, from a local restaurant or a food delivery service. And I've heard such interesting things from our participants about why they choose one versus the other. Um, and so that I thought would be really interesting to delve into. So uh, maybe what an interesting way to frame this is it's so easy to go about our week in terms of what we eat, thinking about what's accessible, what's available. Maybe once a week we're intentional about what we want to eat during that week when we prepare our groceries. One thing that at one table we really try to elevate is approaching what you eat with intention because it can really set the tone for the meal and make it feel so special when we are treating ourselves, when we're eating something that we wouldn't normally eat. I think it's it, it just makes Friday night even more special. And a great example of this uh, was when in Atlanta, we worked with someone who's been hosting Shabbat at home during quarantine and is involved in a men's homeless shelter as a volunteer. And he came up with the wonderful idea of sharing his Shabbat practice with homeless men at the shelter. And when we spoke with um, one of the uh, coordinators um, at this shelter, it was amazing how while she was really excited for some learning Jewish ritual, she was also especially excited to treat these homeless men to some amazing Israeli food because it was an unknown, uh, just hearing that it's from Israel gives it, gives it some sort of elevated meaning. Um, and it was a chance for them to explore new culture and feel fully nourished. Well, I actually wanted to pick up on that a little because I'm curious with one table. I mean, you've had so many people now that have ordered food to be part of one table Shabbat events. Maybe you've done a kind of a natural experiment in um, what's the word that economists use? I, I revealed choice, I think, that by looking at what people actually do, you can understand what they think in a way that they might not even be able to tell you. And I, I don't know that I ever thought that I would have occasion to share this story 
on the air before, but uh, I remember when my grandmother was getting old and she always would make at least what we understood to be Jewish food. It was things like matzo ball soup, but she also made something called kitzitzot, which were basically hamburgers, but there was an egg in them, I think, or something like that. But she we, she was very insistent that this was a, a Jewish food, and maybe it was from where she came in Lithuania. But the interesting thing was that when she started to get too old and she wasn't really able to make the food well anymore, my wife and I would come over every week for Shabbat dinner at her house and we would bring takeout from an Indian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant or something. And she was always very kind of thrown by this. She was always like, what am I going to tell my friends we ate for Shabbat? You know, that it would be like an embarrassment. Not only was it not Jewish food, but she didn't even know the name of this food. And we were like, it's a burrito. (laughs) And um, it was a very enjoyable time in my life to have these conversations with her. But that was obviously someone from a few generations older than us. And now we're talking about people maybe, you know, a few generations younger than me, for sure, and then than us. And so what are you finding in terms of how people experience the idea of the nature of the food that they're eating at a Shabbat dinner versus other elements that make Shabbat dinner Shabbat dinner? That is such an interesting question. And I actually thought about this revealed choice thing a lot when I was the D.C. field manager, because we had a wide range. And I worked really hard as a field manager to make sure that we had a wide range of local restaurants that you could order from. And always the Israeli food was the number one choice. I was like, we have, you know, Bukharanian food and we have Indian food and we have Japanese food and everybody always wanted Israeli. And I found it was so interesting because when I asked people about it, they said, well, I want something Jewish for Shabbat. And, you know, there was the part of me that was like, oh, well, you know, there are Jewish Indians, too. You could have Jewish Indian food. But even beyond that, it was like they if Shabbat was the main Jewish thing that they were doing in that week, they wanted like a full sensory Jewish experience and they wanted whatever they felt to be Jewish food to be a part of that experience. So when we have Ashkenazi hosts, they're often wanting Ashkenazi food. We have Sephardi hosts, they're often wanting Sephardi food. And everybody wants Israeli food because they sort of see that as a Jewish food. And I I don't really feel like it's my place to sort of encourage people to see other foods as Jewish foods. Personally, I think, oh, I, I find Israeli food to be pretty easy to make at home. I'd rather order in something that I don't know how to make. You know, I've I've tried many times to make a dosa. It's never worked. I'm going to order that in because that or injera, I don't know how to make at home. But others, they want, I think, sort of like a almost a simulation of home cooked food, maybe not in that it's something that they can make, but it's something that feels like home to them in a way. I'm also really interested. So I'm interested in the Israeli piece of this and like what's underneath that, right? Like what is leading people to the conclusion or it's not a conclusion. It's the starting point of the Shabbat dinner. But like what is leading them to a place where Israeli food is just sort of self-evidently Jewish and those other foods aren't. And I think that we could answer that in all sorts of ways, but I'm I'm more interested in that question, honestly. And like, are we doing things in our communities that send that message? And is it a message we want to be sending? Forgetting the politics of Israel, but like there are so many wonderful Jewish foods. And the other piece of that is mm-hmm. the takeout side. Like I, I love, uh, Dan, when you were asking your question, I thought you were going somewhere else. When you talked about like having Indian food and your grandmother being confused by that, I thought she was going to be mortified that you had takeout of any kind, forgetting whether it's Jewish food or not. I thought you were going to say like, she couldn't get her mind around that it wouldn't be like a home-cooked meal, that it would be takeout. And you went Mm. a different direction, which I also totally feel. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that would agree that like, oh, the food needs to feel Jewish. But I'll be the first to say like, I actually on Shabbat, maybe this is the, the rebel in me. 
I am more likely to have Shabbat dinner be takeout than other dinners that, during the week. Not because I'm trying to say screw you to like cooked Shabbat dinners. I also take a lot of pride in sometimes putting the time in and cooking a Shabbat dinner in a more classic sense. But like takeout's yummy. And I, I want to eat <laughs> yummy things on Shabbat. Home-cooked food can be yummy too. But like there's something nice about having food where you're like treating yourself and so I'm not somebody who's keeping Shabbat in a traditional sense and like refraining from electronics or from spending money. So one way I engage in Shabbat is by actually like embracing, oh, I'm going to get the food. I, I'm going to order my favorite thing. And I'm not going to worry the most about whether it's the healthiest because this is Shabbat. And I'm not going to do that necessarily on Tuesday, but I'm going to do that on Shabbat. And so I'm curious to the two of you, how does that piece play out? Are there people that are actually like leaning into takeout in the way I am? Are there people that would rebel against that and and get in a, a shouting match with me? What 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 comes up on that front? I love that we're defining what makes Jewish food Jewish food. And boy, do I have strong opinions on whether takeout can be Jewish food. For me personally, I think Indian takeout is my favorite food category. And at the same time, I think a lot of us approach Shabbat, sort of putting it on the pedestal. The the table needs to be perfect. The food has to be cooked at home. But when we find ourselves crawling at the end of the week is what's going to allow us to feel present uh, with others and lean into rest is, is that the right time to be struggling with what do I cook or how can I perfectly recreate my family recipe Maybe those are points of tension for people. And definitely, if the goal is to model hospitality and Shabbat as a gateway into rest, we want to make that practice as accessible as possible. And takeout is a great solution to make a nourishing Shabbat dinner uh, accessible for anyone. And I frequently, um, we sort of, I live with roommates and we take turns picking up the food from a local restaurant sometimes. And then when we're all sort of arriving from a late Friday work day, we're just able to dive right in and enjoy food. And in that context, I would definitely argue that Indian takeout qualifies as Jewish food. Lex, I love what you're saying about takeout being not just uh, a means to the end of Shabbat, but actually enhancing your Shabbat experience by providing for you a way to observe rest and joy that are we are I don't want to say obligated to, but that we have the gift of for Shabbat. And you're in very good company with a lot of one table uh, participants who say that they specifically order takeout because it feels like it elevates their Shabbat. And we've seen a lot more of that during the pandemic. I think because pre-pandemic, many folks might be getting takeout or you know picking something up for the, the during the work week all the time. And now they're home all the time. They're cooking for themselves almost every meal. And so getting takeout feels like a luxury. I think especially at the beginning of the pandemic when it was almost scary to order takeout. But even now when perhaps it's less scary, but it still feels like a gift, that to me feels really special. And I think there's something there with like getting takeout and getting extra takeout and having leftovers and the double portion of mana that the Israelites got in the desert. <laughs> there's something really beautiful there. <laughs> It's like when you make extra challah. (laughs) I I like how you're connecting this to to text because part of where I was going to go in this part of the conversation was like, 
back to this idea of revealed choice, because I think it's really interesting to think about that what makes something a Jewish ritual or what makes something, quote, the right way or an acceptable way to do something Jewish a lot of people think that it's like, can I find a text that supports this? But actually in the Talmud, it often talks about, and B'nai Lapi talks about this, that what one of the sources of law is that you go out into the marketplace and see what the people are doing. And that is actually a source of Jewish law. The and marketplace, so the food place. Yeah, well, the food place. And so I'm thinking about this takeout question actually a little bit because we have Shabbat dinner and also Saturday night dinner generally with the same family every weekend. Now, that says something maybe a little sad about our, my social life and the extent of it, but clearly also <laughs> we've been in a pandemic time. So, but we actually we actually love doing this. It's sort of like an extended family that's, an, that's another family, but we have dinner with them almost every Friday night and Saturday night. And we were just talking the other day, and I think part of the flow of this was economic originally, which was saying we used to have takeout on Friday night and Saturday night, and that was getting kind of expensive. And so at a certain point, we started going to the, I shouldn't say we, because I usually don't go on this part of the trip, but uh, folks would go to the um, farmer's market and they would get bread and cheese and have that kind of salad, you know, that kind of meal. And so what we've been doing, and again, it's not really intentional, it just kind of happened that way, is that we would have takeout for Friday night dinner, and then we would have this farmer's market dinner on Saturday night. And one of our friends said the other day, you know, maybe it would be better if we flipped it and we had the farmer's market dinner on Friday night and the takeout on Saturday night because it feels a little more for, a little bit nicer for Shabbat than if we would actually not have takeout. And we had a conversation about it and, and everybody else basically felt like, well, but we all work really hard. We all have jobs and it's really hard to make a really nice dinner. I mean, I guess the farmer's market is a little easier, but when are you going to go to the farmer's market on Friday? And so it doesn't seem so feasible. So it's kind of like it actually makes our lives a lot better to have the takeout on Friday night and to have the farmer's market or, you know, the more home cooked whatever on Saturday night where we have more time to prepare it. And it just was starting to make me feel like maybe there's a redefinition of the Shabbat experience that emerges out of these realities of our lives. And of course, we can't hide from the notion that the idea that you could have a home-cooked Friday night dinner often came out of a world in which women did not work outside the home and were available to make that, and all kinds of other elements of our lives that we actually don't want to go back to. And, and that's inherently part of the quote, traditional Shabbat dinner. And so maybe it's it has to change. And then the question is, how do you imagine something changing while still retaining whatever connection to quote, tradition that makes it feel like tradition to people? And that's interesting to me, even just that that's getting expressed to some extent by wanting Israeli takeout. Like it's going to be, right? Because we're looking for some connection to something that people call tradition, even though it's obviously not tradition because Israel's only been around for not that long, right? You know, it's really interesting. The essence of the magic of one table is that we provide the resources for people to define what they want as Shabbat. If they want groceries, if they want takeout, if they want credit at their farmer's market, a newly implemented initiative here in D.C., <laughs> they can get nice any plug. of those things. And if they say, actually, for me, it's not so much about the food or we're going to do a potluck. I don't need help with the food. What I really need help with is a tablecloth or what I really need help with is candles or what I really need help with is folding chairs. They can get that help too, because it's about helping them to create the experience. 
I love seeing sort of in aggregate what our participants are doing and seeing that almost as a form of the law of the people, as it were, that what the people are doing, that's what we can learn where we want Shabbat to go and what we want Shabbat to look like, what we want the norm to be 100 years from now or 200 years from now or 300 years from now. One of the things that I'm thinking about now is how food brings us meaning, especially when it's either entirely new, like I'm trying a new palate, or if it takes us back to a strong memory, maybe it's something similar to my mother's soup. When we try to elevate something like dinner on Friday night to start Shabbat, we definitely lean on those as tools to make it more meaningful. And people uh, make selections based on on what's accessible and what feels appropriate. Uh, For some, preparing the meal is, is the ritual. It is Shabbat. Baking challah for so many of the Shabbat hosts that use one table has become a ritual for ending the work week. It's their excuse to a little bit ease out of the work day, maybe a little bit early on Friday. And even that can feel like a challenge. Whereas in Israel, you have a, you, you brought me back to this vivid sort of sense of place in Israel where the entire country is slowing down on Friday and people are going to the shuk, the market during the day. Um, and it's easier. In the United States, is a lot, it's a lot harder to make that time. And in the context of people sharing more about self-care and health, I hope that it becomes more accessible to take that time. But that intention can elevate the space on Friday night. And I know that making that shift is difficult. Uh, and we see how meaningful and rewarding it is because once people start the practice, they do it every week. If having a home-cooked meal is a practice that Israeli culture enables on Friday night, I wonder if takeout is then a diasporic practice because in order to get takeout, you need other people who are working on Friday night, right? In order, or on Saturday, you can only have takeout as your Shabbat practice if you are a minority in a community where other people are working on those days and their rest day is a different day. And there's a lot to get into about labor laws and people being exploited and not having that rest day. And I'm all for everybody having a rest day. And I think there's something really beautiful about different people having different rest days because it enables us to sort of work for each other. I'm thinking of Jewish doctors who work on Christmas so that their Christian counterparts don't have to work on Christmas, right? Being part of a diasporic community and being part of a diverse community where we have different holidays and different rest days enables us to provide for others on their rest days so that they can provide for us on our rest days and we can all have that rest and self-care that we all so desperately need. The other piece of this that I should name and that I think all of us should reflect on is, you know, we're shaped with a certain sense of what Shabbat is or what Friday night is. And for me, like my family was not a family that did a classic home-cooked Shabbat dinner on Friday nights. Very, very rarely would we do that. And honestly, I don't remember, even when we did do dinner at home on Friday nights, I don't remember very many times where we like got challah and lit candles. Uh, it, It just wasn't something that we did. And we did lots and lots of Jewish things, but that wasn't one of them. And so my Friday nights were still somehow special. And like our family still, like we, it was never named, but it was like an important time. And in reflecting, like we would go to services once every 
month, month and a half or whatever on Friday night. And But it wasn't just that we went to services. It was that there was like a rotation of a few restaurants that were the ones we went to after services. And I actually still associate, even if I go to those restaurants when I'm back home visiting in Milwaukee, even if I go to one of them and it's not a Friday night, there's like a sense in which Shabbat, I, I like... I like have associations for Friday night because I always went there right after Friday night services. And uh, in the past few years, two of those restaurants, two that we went to very regularly, closed. And it was more than just like losing a restaurant. It was like I actually had this sense that a place I went as a kind of ritual. I didn't call it a ritual growing up. I wasn't like thinking as a kid, ah, yes, Shabbat part one is the service and Shabbat part two is going to River Lane. That's one of the names of the places that closed. But it was special. And when I lost it in my life, when it closed, there was a real sense of sadness that wouldn't just be the same as if any arbitrary restaurant had closed. And that also, by the way, links to an important piece of this, which is like my family was one that was able, like economically, to have a rotation of nice restaurants that we went to after services on Friday night. Um, And by the way, my synagogue was located in suburban Milwaukee near where a lot of nice restaurants, like that's where a lot of synagogues have located themselves for all sorts of historical reasons is often in like affluent areas. And so I want to go there a little bit too, because I'm, I hope I'm self-aware enough to recognize that what I'm describing is not something that everybody is equally able to do in their lives. And so I'd love to hear for those of us that are experimenting, playing, thinking about this distinction between a home-cooked Shabbat meal, which, by the way, I do really respect and love and do in my own life. I don't want it to come off like I'm against that, especially with one table in a conversation. (laughs) But like, how should we be balancing – you brought up the economic consideration of people like the employees of the restaurants. But also, what about those of us who do and don't have the ability to put money and resources into certain kinds of takeout Shabbat experiences? That's one of the challenges that One Table is trying to address. When Aliza, who you've had on the, the podcast before, when Aliza Klein did her sort of initial research into why aren't young adults doing Shabbat, money was a really big reason because takeout's expensive, because cooking for 10 friends is expensive. And the nourishment credit that One Table offers is not meant to cover the entire cost, but it's meant to make an elevated experience possible for people for whom it might not otherwise be possible, either because of the kind of job they have, because they're new in their career, you know, for for any number of reasons. If I can put in $5 for takeout, I can get takeout, even though takeout in DC costs $15 or $20 per person. So there's there's that piece there that sort of it, it enables the choice. It enables people to experiment Whereas without one table support, maybe their only option is for leftovers with one table support. They have the option to experiment and see, well, what does work for me? Is home cooked food what I want? Is takeout what I want? Is a fancy restaurant what I want? Right. There's the opportunity to experiment and then to figure out what works for you. I'm thinking now about how I have this practice of taking challah that is store bought and dipping it into the sauce from Indian takeout. And the store-bought challah has actually been hard fought for because when I bought my starter home, uh, I was far away suddenly from Jewish community in Atlanta. 
And I intentionally went to the locally owned corner grocery store and started begging them to stock Hala. And finally, we compromised where I agreed to pay for the Hala up front uh, so that they would stock it on the Friday. And now they stock multiple Hala's. And I think this story is such a beautiful example of how the food we choose to consume supports the community around us, not just the local businesses, but the others that might be interested in the same palette. Uh, and it's really validating when I go back to that market and I see that they're low on stock as they've mm. ordered more. And as we compromise between wanting to elevate Shabbat by having a really nice home-cooked meal versus thinking about, you know, do we bake hala, do we buy hala? When we adapt our practices and we think intentionally about the meaning that they can bring up, whether it's meaning from supporting community or just being reminded of memories of Shabbat from growing up, when we have that intention and we, we give ourselves a permission to do something a little different, to compromise, then that can in and of, in and of itself become a ritual. Dipping challah in takeout Indian sauce is actually the perfect ritual for me. There's a story that I love to tell about the magic of being in an interfaith relationship. I, I mean... bake challah, I don't want to say every week, but most weeks. When I bake challah, I put everything bagel seasoning from Trader Joe's on top of the challah. That's my practice. It's delicious. It's the best. Everyone should do it. And uh, one week I decided not to do that. And I just put sesame seeds, which is what I grew up eating on my challah. And my partner was like, what are you doing? This is not traditional. Where is the everything bagel seasoning? It's not even hollow without the everything bagel seasoning. And I thought, of course, the, the everything bagel seasoning has been tradition has been around for like 18 months. OK, this is a brand new tradition. It's hollow because it's braided. 18 months, five 18, months, five nice. months. And I thought, well, it's hollow because it's braided, regardless of what you put on it. But the truth is that even if it's not braided, it's challah too, right? Technically, what makes it challah is taking a little portion out and burning it as a sacrifice, but I don't do that. And so technically, the challah that I bake, I mean, technically, according to maybe the Jewish legal definition, is not challah, but it feels like challah to me because it's braided. And it feels like challah to my partner because it has everything bagel seasoning. And if it wasn't braided, but it had everything bagel seasoning, it would be challah to him. So it is amazing to me how quickly those sorts of traditions and rituals can evolve, right? I'm reflecting on my Shabbat experience growing up and he's reflecting on his Shabbat experience growing with me. And for my kids or for our kids, Shabbat dinner, will look whatever we decide to create, whether that is home-cooked meal or Indian takeout or some of each. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're talking about to some extent is like, how does Jewish food become Jewish food? How What is the emergence of Jewish food look like? Like, as you were talking, I was just reflecting on a recent experience that I got the falafel balls from Trader Joe's. They're OK for a snack, but the pita at Trader <laughs> Joe's is not good. So we tried to get naan, Indian naan instead. And that was actually much better because it was like a fluffier, like a more like what my daughter calls Hebrew pita, you know, pita that tastes more like it was from Israel. And I had some extra sauce from the great tacos that we like to get once a week on Taco Tuesdays. Uh, that's what we call it in my house, Taco Tuesday. And we actually go in this great place and get taco. And they have this really great hot sauce that they always give you too much. So we put it in the refrigerator, but we almost never use it. And I was like, oh, let me see if I like dump this, how it's going to be. And so I had this 
sandwich that was naan with falafel in it and taco sauce, and it was fantastic. Now, is that a Jewish food? Like, you know, how do we how how do we determine? You know how much I mean. Let's on the assumption that falafel is a Jewish element, which is controversial. So the question becomes like, what makes something a Jewish food, such that when we look at like people can't see it, but in back of Annie you've got a, a screen background that's matzo ball soup, which everybody tends to feel like that's a legit Jewish food, except that it really comes from a German bread ball soup. And sure, there's a Jewish element in that we use matzo meal instead of bread meal, <laughs> flour, I guess. But like, at what point does that little variation turn it into a profoundly Jewish food such that it becomes seen as a Jewish food? And how does that whole, and does it even matter that there are Jewish foods and, or why does it matter? There are so many elements of what you asked that I want to touch on. One is I think Jewish is as Jewish does. And I think if you do something with a Jewish intention, particularly if you do it with that same Jewish intention more than once, it becomes Jewish. So maybe, Dan, that one time that you, you know, had the taco sauce and the falafel in the naan, maybe that wasn't a Jewish food. But if you do that two or three or four times and you say, oh, yeah, this is this is my Jewish food, it becomes your family grows up eating that. Right. That maybe that if becomes a Jewish Shabbat. food. Right. Perfect. If you had it for Shabbat, then that is what that it becomes a Jewish food, right? I think because it was done with Jewish intention. And the other thing I want to touch on is that feeling of something that feels Jewish. And then we learn maybe it's not exclusively Jewish and how that can be exciting and sad at the same time. One restaurant that I grew up eating at all the time was a Jewish deli, non-kosher deli that I grew up eating at all the time. They actually had this practice of taking pictures of customers every couple of months and painting them up on the wall. I'm up on the wall as a, the 11 year old, maybe with a teddy bear. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's, it's a so real, jealous. it's an honor. It's an honor. But what's sad is that I started keeping kosher when I was 15 and I can't eat at that restaurant anymore. And I, I do eat at their pickle bar, which is truly the most important part of that restaurant is their pickle mm. bar. But the things that I grew up eating there, their matzo brai and their Reuben sandwiches, I actually can't eat. And so I feel in a way I made a Jewish what feels to me a Jewish dietary choice that also takes away some Jewish dietary choice. And that feels weird and, and painful and hard. The other thing I'm thinking about is Jewish foods that feel Jewish to me when I see them, but other people aren't seeing them as Jewish. I went out to eat at a, a Swiss restaurant a couple of weeks ago here in DC, and I saw they had a big pile of breads, Swiss breads. And I immediately saw one and I said, that's challah, they're selling challah. And there was a little label that said, no, it's not challah, it's zapf. And I was like, zapf, this is what they're calling our challah. They've stolen our challah <laughs> and they're calling it zapf. And I Google it, it is like the national bread of Switzerland. And I'm like, okay, so they didn't steal this. It just happens, It ha but it doesn't happen, right? Where, where does challah come from? Challah comes from Europe, it's braided. Brioche is basically dairy challah, right? So if you braid brioche, it just looks like challah. And that's it. There was a piece of me that felt so excited to see challah being mainstreamed, as it were. And then a part of me that felt almost sad. I was like, that's my thing or that's our thing. And, and that can be hard. That can be a hard feeling. Pickle, of course, is a deeply Jewish food because ale is God in Hebrew. So it means pick God. <laughs> of course, choose of course God. It that's, does. that's what's happening whenever you eat a pickle. That's why it's always in the Jewish deli, of course. Um, I have a variety of questions that may 
work together and maybe a ramble and we'll see. We talked about Israeli food at the beginning of this and I'm interested in that. I think there's a general approach to stuff that happens in Israel, which is, and like, if a thing happens in Israel, it's Jewish. I, I think that's kind of the general approach, right? Like if, if there's an Israeli movie about a soccer team, I think a Sunday school might show that film because it's Israeli. Like it, they might not do anything related to a Jewish holiday. They might not do any ritual, but like it's an Israeli movie. So like there's a way in which that's Jewish. And I actually don't disagree with that. I actually think there's something real there. That's how I feel about Seinfeld. Exactly. Um, Seinfeld isn't actively shouting to the rooftops like, yo, we're Jews, but you, you can see it pretty clearly. So we, we do that with place, right? We say if a thing happens in Israel, it's Jewish. It, it, we don't say it, but we communicate that with our understandings of the world, with that revealed choice that we were talking about earlier. We're not quite convincing ourselves with time. If you eat it on Shabbat, it's Jewish, no matter what it is. If you if a thing's eaten in Israel, then it's Jewish. If you eat it on Shabbat, it's not necessarily. We like sort of have to convince ourselves that mm-hmm. it comes from a Jewish place or that it has a Jewish story, whatever. And I'm I'm fascinated by that. I really like I'm both questioning it and I'm fascinated in it because like there is something about even as I say that we're like I don't know if I really think like any food that anyone eats on Shabbat is Jewish, right? Like, and I'm thinking of all things of the TV show, the British TV show Friday Night Dinner. Um, I don't know if either Annie or Nir, you've watched this show. Yeah. I strongly, I think one table staff yeah. should have like a group binge of Friday Night Dinner. It's about a Jewish family in England and it's it all, it takes place on Friday night, every single episode. And they they have dinner together. They, they make Jewish references every, I don't know, every like few episodes. But you could watch it and think it's just a show about a family that happens to eat dinner together on Friday nights if you weren't Jewish or if you weren't paying attention. But what's so powerful is I actually think that that very claim is make it, it's sending the message that the Jewish thing is just to eat dinner together on a Friday night and not that you're eating matzo ball soup because like they rotate foods every week. There's usually candles in the corner if you look. They don't do the blessings. But like I was curious to to hear on that time and space front. This could be about Shabbat and also honestly it could be about other Jewish holidays, other like Jewish moments in the calendar. How would you balance the tension between you know what? If you eat this as a Jewish practice on whatever day, it's Jewish. And that call in us that like, well, it kind of has to have a Jewish history. For me, the key is the kavana, the intention of the choice. The emerging practice in my household of having tilapia gumbo on Passover because it's <laughs> K for P, kosher for Passover, and a little bit more exciting in my book than matzo ball soup. That can become a Jewish food, even though it is certainly a Cajun and very Catholic food. It can become a Jewish food if it becomes a part of a Jewish ritual. So I think if there is an intention to say, I'm, I'm making this choice because I'm Jewish, like my older brother who goes to a Jewish deli to have food on Yom Kippur because he doesn't want to fast on Yom Kippur, but he wants to do something Jewish on Yom Kippur. That is a Jewish ritual and a Jewish tradition to me because he's making it with the the intention of a Jewish choice. Similarly, if we had grown up eating sushi as a family and he went to go get Japanese on Yom Kippur, that would feel like a Jewish choice to me because it has the Jewish intention and because it, it comes with the repetition. A moment of intention without the repetition is mindfulness 
But with the repetition, it then becomes ritual and that's when it becomes Jewish to me. So I have a question calling back. We were talking about the marketplace before. We, we were referring to like the thing in the Talmud about go out and see what people are doing in the marketplace. We have marketplaces now. They're different. They're, you know, grocery stores a lot of the time. We talked about farmer's markets. But there are Jewish sections of grocery stores sometimes. And that's a fascinating thing, right? Like all these conversations we're having about like what is Jewish food and how we are permitting ourselves to go in really creative directions. Like there are actually practical questions that grocery stores are asking around like which foods go on this shelf that says Jewish or in certain times of year – and it's really important, right? Like, which foods go on the shelf for the Passover section or for the Hanukkah section? Or f- maybe, I think there's fewer of these sections, but like the Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, High Holiday yeah. section. Uh, if you ask the giant near my house, the answer is matzah for every holiday. You read my mind. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. Okay. So every year, Hanukkah rolls around and the viral pictures appear on Facebook. You get the picture of, oh my gosh, here's a picture of my local grocery store. They put up their matzah section. They've got four rows of matzah. And of course, that goes viral because it's like that matzah is not a Hanukkah food, right? And then Passover comes around and you see the viral photos of your Passover hams or whatever in the in the Passover section, which of course are many people's Passover practice would not be to eat that ham because it's kosher. It's not kosher at all, forget, um, although it doesn't break the bread rules of Passover, it's not kosher in the general sense. I want to push the folks that are circulating those viral images, especially on the Hanukkah front. Um, I have met multiple people who have told me, I have a Jewish grandparent, or maybe even I am Jewish. I have, uh, whether they're Jews by choice, whether they Jews by birth. And they're not, they're not spending a lot of time in their yearly calendar doing Jewish things. Hanukkah rolls around and they actually have matzah brai. For whatever reason, their grandma makes matzah brai on Hanukkah. Now, I think there's a uh, there's some interesting things happening there around time, right? Hanukkah is just Jewish time. And there's a way in which if a food is quote unquote Jewish, eating it at a Jewish time feels right. And so there, and some of these folks that I'm referencing, they don't really do a Passover Seder. So if they're going to have any relationship to matzah, at any point in the year, Hanukkah is probably when they're going to have that relationship. And I act like my suspicion is if we looked at like the sales numbers of these grocery stores, I'd love for one table or somebody else to do this study. Like I actually believe that that matzah on the shelf on Hanukkah is selling. I can't prove it. I don't, I'm not saying it's selling out, but I think that some people are buying it. And so the, the same question I asked before about like, does that make it a, a Hanukkah food? I don't know that I'm arguing matzah is a Hanukkah food. But I don't know that I'm arguing that it isn't. And on the Passover front, I don't know that the ham in the Passover section is like making ham a, a, a Passover food. But if there's a lot of people out there whose Passover practice is to not eat bread, but to eat whatever else, including bacon or ham or whatever, there are many of those people. Is that a Jewish practice? And so I'm curious how you would relate to that. And maybe, maybe this is a fun exercise, like if there's foods not on the Jewish selves, or not on the Passover shelves, or not on the Hanukkah shelves in the grocery store that you think we should be adding? As you ask that, I'm reminded of the sense of um, sort of doing a scavenger hunt when one of these holidays is approaching. 
And it's typically not that everything I need for my Passover Seder is nicely organized in the Jewish section. It's, <laughs> it's maybe I'm grabbing the matzah from there, but I'm running around looking for, for the egg, looking for the ingredients to make haroset. And part of that journey, that scavenger hunt, is what brings my whole being into the state of like excitement, like, oh my God, Passover is coming. This feels really special. Uh, and I'm not someone that enjoys shopping at all, but when I'm looking through uh, the grocery store, looking for what I need to express how, not just how I now celebrate Passover, but how I was brought up doing so, and it brings me back. It's a very visceral experience, and to me, that feels like an expression of Jewish identity. And if I happen to be walking around and noticing someone else with similar things in their shopping cart, there's this instant connection. Max, you're pushing me on the Passover ham. <laughs> that's a that's good. a stretch for me. I'm good. It's it's a productive stretch. But I think part of to me why it feels like a stretch is because I don't think that the Passover ham is being put out thinking, oh, there are people. And of course, there are people. And I have many friends like this who don't eat bread on Passover, but would eat a ham. I think it's getting put out because of Easter. And because totally. the idea that that Passover is Easter in some way, which if anything, it's the other way around. But I don't think either one is the case. And what I would love to see is more things that could be a part like I would love to see cilantro next to the matzah, even though parsley is mostly what people dip, not cilantro. That to me would be we did a little bit of Googling and we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> right. As opposed to ham next to the matzah. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And the ham thing, I'm not really here to make that claim about ham. I bring it up mostly as like a hyperbolized example right, of right. the broader point. I'm cu- I am curious, the matzah in Hanukkah piece, how you'd, how you'd wrestle with that. I mean, I will say if you're frying anything, that's Hanukkah to me, right? The way that my family makes matzah brai, which I believe literally means fry, I think brai means fry if I'm getting my Yiddish right, um, is it, we don't fry it, but many people do. So there's there's a connection there where you're supposed to be frying things in oil. Um, and to me, that feels the same thing as my older brother going to a deli on Yom Kippur. It's not technically what you're supposed to do, but it feels like a Jewish choice to me. And so what I would say is not don't fry matzah, but fry matzah as opposed to fry matzah, if that makes sense. I would love not to change the practice, but to encourage people to see the frying as, as the thing. And also I see your point about Whatever makes someone feel connected to their Judaism, that is great. I don't want it to end there, right? If all, if the only Jewish thing that someone ever does is eat matzah brai on on Hanukkah, to me, I would say like let's let's try to find something else too, not to stop doing that. That's a beautiful practice. Pass it on to your kids or your friends or whoever you want to pass it on to. Amazing. And also, let's look for something else as well. I do. I would just like to pick up on the supposed to language only because like, I think there's like two kinds of supposed to in Jewish eating. One is that and, and I don't know that necessarily one is superior to the other. You know, one is that there's a rule somewhere, maybe in the Torah, maybe in the Talmud, you know, that says, for example, you should eat matzah on Passover. Like that's that's written down somewhere. That's like a, a law. Then there's like you should fry things in oil on Hanukkah. That is written like nowhere authoritative. You know, that okay. is a supposed to that comes from that Jews did it a lot. And it's not even clear that they did it for Hanukkah. You know, they they did it probably because in the winter in Europe, it's hard to, you know, there's things have to be kept cold and you want to, heat it, you know, and, there, and at some point somebody says like, 
oh, hey, we fried it in oil, and Hanukkah's about oil, and wow, what a cool coincidence. By the way, that also happened with Hamantaschen, because Hamantash just means a poppy pocket, and it has nothing at all to do with Purim. And at one point, somebody said, pass the poppy pocket, and they said, pass Haman, Hamantash, and somebody said, hey, Haman, I heard Haman, that sounds like Purim, and it becomes, you know, so it's interesting how these, like, should and that we do evolve into people talking about you should fry things in oil. I'm not saying you did, but I mean that people talk about you should fry things in oil in the same register as you should eat matzah on Passover when they really come from profoundly different directions. And and I don't know if that matters. I'm curious as we're sort of like just winding up whether, I don't know if one table has done these kinds of researches yet. Uh, I'm just sort of curious whether in these five years there's any sense is there any sense in which we know what's happening with young Jews who form the habit through one table of being able to have Shabbat dinners and it's subsidized? And then like two questions, like one, do they continue to do it on their own once it's not subsidized anymore? And two, are they, do we have any way of knowing? Are we seeing, like, are they doing it in the same sort of unbound way that we've been talking about, where they were liberated by one table to think more creatively about what makes Shabbat dinner Shabbat dinner, and we see that continuing as they get older? Do we not know that information yet? One of the amazing things about our platform and supporting individuals to host Shabbat is that we literally give hundreds of options which people can select from to support and nourish themselves. There's local restaurants, um, there's national chains, and the array that individuals are selecting changes all the time. In certain weeks, it's uh, traditionally Jewish food. In other weeks, it might be a locally owned Black business. Uh, When the intention is there, uh, it is meaningful and it adds to the experience that is Shabbat. What we have found and what we are so proud to have found um, is that One Table really is unbinding people from their perceptions of what Shabbat dinner has to or should, in quotation marks, look like. You know, our, our participants are seeing, you know, eating pizza or having Indian takeout or sitting in the park as beautiful Shabbat choices, Jewish Shabbat choices that are informing their Shabbat practice. And what they're doing at their meals, they are eating challah and lighting candles, certainly. I think we can all agree that those are beautiful, wonderful things. But they're also meditating and doing movement and things that feed their mental health. And they're being creative and they might be doing art or playing games that are feeding connection. And they are seeing those things also as Jewish choices and as an important part of their Shabbat practice. We recently actually released the results of our impact survey. And we found some really beautiful, not just anecdotal, but quantitative evidence as well that we're seeing what what the change that we want to be making in the world. Um, we're really proud to share that three quarters of our participants are celebrating Shabbat because of one table when they otherwise wouldn't have. And even among people who haven't used one table in a year or more, they're not so active on one table. 40% are celebrating Shabbat more often than they did before one table. That is beautiful. That deserves like its own whole episode, <laughs> I think. I feel so proud to be part of an organization that is doing this important and meaningful work that did that important and meaningful work to me and made Shabbat an important part of my practice um, without prescribing what it should look like or must look like, but sort of giving me the support and the structure to find that for myself. So I have a closing question. We've covered a lot of beautiful ground and I want to leave in a way that I think is natural for food, which is that food is a gateway 
to me, I mean, in some ways, food is itself sometimes the meaning of ritual. But I think often food is the gateway into the meanings, the rituals that are the heartbeat of our lives. So I wanted to ask the two of you, as people that are engaging in your own Shabbat practices and people that are regularly in dialogue with others uh, engaging in Shabbat practices, the rituals of Friday night, I think today are still understood as this set of prayers that are quote-unquote Shabbat prayers, Kabbalat Shabbat, Mariv, and there's this set of blessings that you say around the dinner table, Shalom Aleichem is the song you sing, and the blessing over the wine and the blessing over the bread and the, uh, all of that. And I'm curious, as you're co-creating and learning from the participants that are creating these events, have they actually like sacralized to use a word that might feel Christian, I don't know. Like, have they, have they, any of the new things that they've done, any of the creative rituals, any of the dipping challahs in Indian food that we've talked about, have, has anybody taken a step of like creating a Hebrew blessing for that or doing something that enshrines it as like consciously with intent as this is actually not just like a personal practice I do. This is something I'm sharing with my community. This is something that we're like claiming as Jewish? Are there other parts of the ritual that people have played with? I mean, I've been thinking lately about the blessing for the children that's traditionally on Friday night and how I would pine for a blessing like that, that isn't for children, that when I'm with friends at a Shabbat dinner, I'd like to have a traditional quote unquote Jewish blessing for blessing your buds. That feels, and I actually think there's a need for it in in a world where more and more of us are spending Friday night dinners, not just with nuclear family. So like, are there pieces like that, you know, sacralized rituals, stamps of Jewishness that feel more like classical that people have imparted on creative new Jewish forms of practice that they're doing at their one table Shabbats? I love this question because I think it really gets into the essence, the key of what it looks like for someone that did not grow up with Shabbat to really embrace and appreciate the meaning of what Shabbat can be. When we give ourselves the permission to create our own ritual, to do something that feels accessible, but also intentional with, with a script, with drama, with movement, um, then we are fully present in what we are doing, and it feels special. And it, I'm I'm constantly inspired by all the ways that we see individuals coming up with their own rituals, whether it's doing a meditation while lighting candles or making a toast and just taking turns sharing a highlight from the week instead of doing the tr- traditional. Uh, blessing over the wine. And when people feel agency in recreating the ritual, then they internalize it and they do it more often. And it's the, the meaning that they echo to us is, is always um, very powerful. One of the pieces that I have seen elevated in a way is actually the icebreaker, which I feel like mm. gets such a bad rap as like, uh, oh, let's let's break the ice because it must be really awkward here and find something, you know, for everyone to share. But I have been in so many one table Shabbat settings where the act of encouraging everybody present around that table to bring their voice into the room and to share a little bit about whether it's why they're there or what their week was like or what they're hoping to get out of the space, something that they are excited to talk about that they're hoping someone will come up and talk to them about. There is such power in 
ensuring that everyone gets to speak at least once, no matter how quiet you are, and that everyone at that table is going to listen to you, especially at larger tables or at gatherings where not everyone is sitting at a table the whole time. That moment to me feels really special and meaningful. And I've been so moved by seeing one table hosts and guests elevate that moment. And then I'll say, honestly, that the most powerful thing about Shabbat dinner is sharing food with people. There's this anthropological term, commensality, which means essentially eating together and all of the beautiful social, ritual, communal benefits that come from eating together. Commensality feels holy to me. Breaking bread with someone feels holy to me, whether that bread is challah or zapf or injera or anything else, or whether that bread is soup. Breaking bread, eating with other people feels holy to me because it's a moment of vulnerability and communalness um, that I crave all throughout the week and that I finally get on Friday. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having us. And Shabbat Shalom, no matter what day of the week it is. Love that. Shabbat Shalom. And uh, this episode is released on a Friday. So if you're listening to this on opening day, Shabbat Shalom. And even if you're listening on a random Tuesday, we agree with Nir. It is never inappropriate to say those two magical words. So first things first, head to onetable.org. If you heard Annie and Nir talking, you're like, I, I kind of want to do that. I want to host a Shabbat dinner or even just I want to attend a Shabbat dinner that somebody else is hosting. Go to onetable.org. You can do either of those things. And uh, just browse around and see what's being offered and learn more about this awesome organization. And we will close out this episode now. We're thankful to you for listening. We hope that you'll continue on with us through this mini-series of episodes on Jewish food and into the future of Judaism Unbound. But uh, as we close out this episode, we want to send out our always request, which is that you could be in touch with us. And there are a lot of different ways that you can do that. First, you can head to our Facebook or Twitter or Instagram feeds. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And third, you can email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.